today we are going to talk about what does it mean to become a Christian. And we're going to think about the theology behind what it means to become a Christian. So we're going to discuss things like what is conversion? What is the difference between the term effective calling and general calling? We're going to learn what regeneration is and what is required for a person to be, quote, born again. All of these terms. We're also going to discuss the controversy of free grace theology and how the view does not express the entire gospel message. And if you're interested in learning more about free grace theology, Dr. Grudem wrote a book against free grace theology, Five Ways to It Diminishes the Gospel. So you can look at that if that intrigues you or as you learn about it today, you're like, oh, I've heard people teach this. I want to have a better rebuttal. He will give you a better rebuttal in that book. So let me pray and we're going to study this. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have given us salvation. Lord, that we have come to know you. Each person here has decided to follow you, to, to surrender their life, to live a life of repentance. And Lord, I just pray that as we study this today, this will help us as we disciple others, as we pray for others, to help others really wrestle with, have they decided to become a follower of Jesus or not? And what would that entail? So this will give us greater confidence as we minister to others to help them know if they've actually become a follower of Jesus. So thank you for this theology that we can learn today. In your name we pray. Amen. So first we're going to discuss the difference between these two terms, gospel calling and general calling, which is gospel calling is like a general calling or effective calling. What are these? So when the Apostle Paul talks about the way that God brings salvation into our lives. He says this in Romans 8.30, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here Paul is listing an order in which the blessings of salvation come to us. So justification and glorification come after you were called. The calling from God is called the effective call. When God calls you, it's called the effective call. So let's define effective calling. It's a summons from the king of the universe, speaking through human proclamation of the gospel. So people have to still share the gospel in such a way that people respond in saving faith. So effective calling always will lead to saving faith. This call guarantees a response because Paul said in Romans 8.30, what we just read, that all who were called were justified. So if you were called by God, if he pursues you, you were justified. You've already been justified, just as if I've never sinned, right? So Jesus also says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And John 6, 65, just further in that chapter, he says, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So gospel calling or general calling is the next thing. So what's the difference between effective calling where God calls you and gospel calling or the general call? The general call is for all people and it's an external call. So what that means is there are many people who are going to hear 
the general calling of the gospel, but not all of them say yes to the gospel, right? That's the general call. We go out, we share the gospel, but not everybody responds. So this is an external calling, but not everyone has the internal conviction, right, or change. In other cases, the gospel call, a person is sharing the gospel, is made so effective because the Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts, and so they do respond. And that means those people not only had the gospel call, but the effective call. God addresses the gospel call in a few ways, in our intellect, in our emotions, and our wills. So you share the gospel with someone, and this is what God does. God speaks to our intellect, by explaining the facts of salvation in his word. They have to hear the word of God and they understand intellectually the gospel. Then God speaks to our emotions by issuing a heartfelt personal invitation to respond. Do you want to receive me? Right, is what God does. And then God speaks to our wills by asking us to hear his invitation and respond willingly in repentance and faith to decide to turn from our sins and receive Christ as Savior and rest our hearts in Him for salvation. Okay, so gospel call and effective call. The gospel can only be understood if people explain it to others. Romans 10, 14 says, How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And this is why we must boldly proclaim the gospel message trusting that God will do what he did for Lydia in Acts 16, 14. Here's what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Isn't that what you need to pray for missionaries, right? That the Lord will open people's hearts to pay attention to what was said by the missionary. The general call is given, and then the effective call is what opens people's hearts so that they can then choose to respond to the gospel in faith. God gives them the faith to respond. So even our faith is not conjured up on our own, but God gives us the faith. Although effective calling awakens and brings forth a response from us, we must always insist that this response still has to be voluntary. We're still choosing, right, to say yes to Christ. We are willing to respond and put our trust in who Jesus says he is. So let's talk about the gospel call and what are elements in it? What are we sharing with people? There are three key components that need to be in every gospel presentation or it's not a complete gospel presentation. First, you do need to explain the facts concerning salvation, which we'll get into. You need to have an invitation to respond to Christ personally in two ways, repentance and faith. Do they want to repent and do they want to have faith in Jesus? And then finally, they need to understand that there is a promise of forgiveness for their sins and that they will experience eternal life with God. So what are the facts concerning salvation? What does that mean? This is what you would share with people. You could start with just using Romans and start with Romans 3.23 and show that all people have sinned. And so we fall short of what God expects. Then we go to Romans 6, 23. The penalty for our sin is death. We will be separated from God for all eternity. And then we can go to Romans 5, 8, which says Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead and is alive today. So that is the gospel message. We are sinners. The penalty for our sin is death. Jesus died to pay our penalty so we can have a relationship with him. 
The response to that message is they need to repent and believe this good news personally. When a person responds in faith to the gospel call, God promises their sins will be forgiven and that they will experience eternal life with God himself. Also, John 6, 37 says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's encouraging, right? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how is this call received? This is the next question. After the invitation to respond to the gospel is given, do you want to receive Jesus? Do you want him in your life? God must bring about change in an individual's heart before he or she is able to respond in faith. That change a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us or new birth or the term being born again is what we call regeneration. I'm sure you've heard that word before, regeneration. So what is regeneration? That's what we're going to talk about now. John 1:13 says they were born or regenerated, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So we couldn't, couldn't conjure up our regeneration nor of the will of man, I can't just want to be regenerated, but by God. Okay, that's John 1, 13. Just as we did not choose to be made physically alive, and we did not choose to be born, it is something that happens to us. Similarly, these analogies and scriptures suggest that we are entirely passive in the role of regeneration. Now, in we pay, play no active role, but we do play an active role in conversion and in our sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. So some of our salvation we're active in and some of our salvation we're passive in. And regeneration happens to us, not something we choose to do. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So regeneration is an instant, instantaneous event that changes everything in your life, okay? You become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This change results in a transformed heart that leads to a transformed character that produces a transformed life. So a regenerated person should expect these evidences in their life. They should have a new love for God and his people. They should have heartfelt obedience to his commands and Christ-like character traits like the fruit of the Spirit. So when we talk about regeneration, which member of the Trinity causes this regeneration? Well, Jesus speaks of us being born of the Spirit in John 38. And so the Holy Spirit is part of our regeneration, but also God the Father. As it says in Ephesians 2, 5, it is God who made us alive together with Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, God, according to his abundant mercy, has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So both God the Father and the Holy Spirit are part of the regeneration that happens in us. So here's how we can think about the process of salvation, okay? All that we just talked about. As the gospel comes to us through an external calling, right? Somebody sharing the gospel with us. God speaks through it to summon us to himself, which is the effective calling. And then he gives us new spiritual life, which is regeneration, so that we are enabled to respond in faith. So effective calling is God the Father speaking powerfully to us 
And regeneration is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit working powerfully in us to make us alive. So it's hard to picture a timeline, but Grudem would propose that regeneration comes before saving faith. And here's how he explains it. If regeneration is an act of God awakening spiritual life within us, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life, we can grasp that regeneration comes before we have saving faith. It is, in fact, this work of God that gives us the spiritual ability to actually respond to God in faith because we don't have faith in and of ourselves. However, when we say that it comes before saving faith, it's important to remember that they usually come so close together, it will ordinarily seem to us that they're actually happening at the same time. So it's not like, oh, I feel regenerated. Okay, now I have faith. It happens so quickly. As he regenerates you, you immediately have faith. Okay, so it kind of, it's pretty simultaneous as, as much as we can understand it. So Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we're completely dead, makes us alive together with Christ. So he does it. That's why we're saying it's while you're already dead, he makes you alive. And in that moment, you have enough faith to respond to him. That's kind of how to think through it with that verse. Paul also says in Colossians 2.13, you who were dead in your trespasses, same thing, right? And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So here's what some people might say to this idea of regeneration. If you believe in Christ as your savior, then after you believe, you'll be born again, right? If you believe, then you will be born again. You might hear people say that. But scripture actually doesn't ever say those exact words. If you believe, you will be born again. It does not say that. This new birth is viewed by scripture as something that God does within us in order to enable us to believe. So the reason evangelicals, we often think of regeneration coming after saving faith is because we see the results of saving faith, right? We see that we love God or we love his word or we're turning from sin after someone comes to faith. So we think, well, regeneration must come after you have faith, right? But here we must decide based on what scripture tells us because regeneration is not something we see or we can know about directly. It would be best to emphasize that we do not see regeneration, but we only see the results of regeneration in our lives. And that faith in Christ for salvation is actually the first result we see. So think of that. God grants us regeneration. We respond in faith and we start to see our life changing, which is evidence of the regeneration. So the explanation of the gospel message in scripture does not take the form of a command like be born again and you will be saved. But it actually says, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So it's not be born again. It's believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ultimately, the exact nature of regeneration, it's a mystery. We don't understand how God gives us this new spiritual life. Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's showing we don't fully understand how the Spirit works in regeneration. But what we do know is what's affected in regeneration. 
every single part of us. We are a new creation because of regeneration. And regeneration happens only once, whereas your sanctification is a journey you have until you're perfectly glorified in heaven. Regeneration is at the very beginning. It happens only once. You were dead, and the next moment you have spiritual life from God. That is what regeneration is. You were dead, and now you're spiritually alive. You might not be sanctified yet, but you were dead, and now you're spiritually alive. That's one moment, and that's regeneration. So the change becomes evident over time as you do see the patterns of behavior changing in your life. How do we know if someone has regeneration in their life? Well, genuine regeneration must bring results in your life. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God, and we know that term born means regenerate, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Didn't say you have to be perfect, right? But it said you don't make a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born or regenerate of God. This doesn't mean the person will have a perfect life, but they will desire to be obedient to Christ and the scriptures. 1 John 2.29 also says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born or regenerated of him. So people who have been born of God also overcome the world. So regeneration gives us the ability to overcome pressures and temptations that would otherwise keep us from obeying God's commands and following him. 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Besides seeing results in life, another result of regeneration is protection from Satan. Because you have a new life, you are no longer under Satan. John 5:18. we know that everyone who has been born of God, regenerate, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, right, regenerate, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And then 1 John 4, 4 says, because the Holy Spirit is in us, he is greater than Satan who is in the world. So we know the Holy Spirit's in us. So now, because the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, we are protected from Satan. And then finally, another result of regeneration is the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident in our life. Galatians 5, and 23, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. Matthew 7, 15 says, you will recognize them by their fruit. Okay, this is important regeneration, new spiritual life. Over time, you need to see fruit in this person's life. Genuine love for God and his people, heartfelt obedience to his commands, Christ-like character traits, and just wanting the Holy Spirit to work in us are evidence of regeneration in our lives and others. What's interesting is neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor John pointed to activity in the church or miracles of evidence of regeneration. It didn't matter if you could do healings. It didn't matter if you could do amazing things. It was about character, right? They said in Matthew 7, 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus declared to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So do not look at yourself or others and say, oh, but look, I'm getting to do these powerful things for the kingdom. It's not that, it's the character traits in your life that show regeneration.
and you got to be careful because there's a lot of false teachers out there. And what you're going to say is, but look at their ministry. Look how they've impacted people. And they still might actually not have a regenerated life because if you actually knew them personally and studied their character, there's no real transformation. You see, that's what you got to be careful of. So how is this call responded to? What's involved in actually coming to Christ? When the New Testament talks about people coming to salvation, it speaks in terms of a personal response to an invitation from Christ himself. John 1.11 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this shows a need to actually receive Jesus, not just know about him. Jesus invites people to personally respond. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock to your heart, to your life. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, eat with him and he with me. Jesus will have a personal relationship with you once you let him in. If we come to Christ and trust him to save us from our sins, we can no longer cling to sin, but must be willing to renounce it in genuine repentance. Paul spent his time testifying both Jews and Greeks to repent toward God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was in Acts 20, 21. His main message is repent and have faith in Jesus. Repent and have faith in Jesus. He said again, Luke 24, 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So if your gospel message does not include that they need to repent of their sins, it is not a gospel message. Okay, that is very clear in, ironically, the gospels. <laughs> this shows that any genuine gospel presentation must include an invitation to make a conscious decision to forsake, to move away from one's sins and come to Christ in faith, asking Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Once God summoned them through that effective call and he changes a person's heart through regeneration, the necessary response is repentance and faith. That's what you have to get in your mind, is there repentance and faith. The gospel call is a personal call requiring a personal response. This willing, personal, individual response to the gospel where a person repents of his sins and then places his trust in Jesus for salvation, that's when you're converted. I repent and I put my trust in Christ and I'm converted. So what's conversion? What's that term mean? Because it's a little different than, than regeneration. Conversion is our action, whereas regeneration is God's action. It is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and we choose to put our trust in Christ for our salvation and not ourselves. The word conversion literally means turning, right? So we're spiritually turning from sin to Christ. I think sometimes people say, yeah, I just want to be forgiven for my bad sins. But they don't get converting means to turn and say, I don't want my sins anymore. I want Christ. So that's where we miss out on the gospel as well. Oh, do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Not do you want to turn from your sins, no longer live a sinful life, but live a life for Christ. You see how you have to explain that? Not just do you want for, we say these quick terms like, do you want to be forgiven? You want to be with Jesus? And what I'm seeing is there's still a lack of repentance. Someone can flippantly say, forgive me, God but not be repentant enough to want to turn from their ways. And so there is no fruit. 
Do you see the difference? The, our, we can say these words and they sound like the gospel, but it doesn't actually help lead someone to conversion. So turning from sin is repentance and turning to Christ is what we call faith. So do you want to turn in, from your sin in repentance and do you want to turn to Christ in faith? That's a great way you can ask somebody if they want to become a follower of Jesus. All right, so the next question is, what is required for true saving faith? What's saving faith? Well, true saving faith requires trust, right? We need to trust somebody. You are personally trusting Jesus is the one that's going to save you, not yourself. So you don't just believe Jesus, but we're actually to believe in him. We're trusting in him. Believing in him is to pour our personal trust and dependence. We're going to depend on him for our salvation. It's not just about the facts, right? Jesus' life, death, resurrection. It's not just knowing that. People can know the facts and still rebel against them or even dislike them. Romans 1.32 says, Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them but give approval of those who practice them. So some people know Jesus. They know the story of the gospel and still do not support it. Also, James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. So we need to emphasize to people just believing that Jesus is who he said he is, is not enough. Satan and the demons believe who Jesus is too, and they're afraid of him. So that's not enough for salvation. We got to tell people that just believing what Jesus did is not enough. Even approving of the facts or agreeing they're true is not enough. A person must decide, I'm going to trust Jesus to save me personally. So that's why you got to, people sometimes say, which is not wrong. Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. And you're just like, okay, so you maybe didn't have a point, but in this moment, do you trust Jesus is saving you personally? So just you reiterate that. If someone has the journey of, oh, I never made this clear prayer, but yeah, I believe in Jesus. I felt just, just can reemphasize that. Did you ever make this decision to put your full trust in Jesus for your salvation. John 1:12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we have to receive him, not just believe him. So the word trust is a better word to use in our generation, in our culture, than the word faith or belief. Even though the words faith and belief are more biblical and they're in the Bible, when you talk to a non-believer or seeker, you want to ask them if they want to trust in Jesus. You want to think about you can believe in something and still have no personal commitment or dependence on it, right? You just believe facts. Or faith, on the other hand. People in the world think faith is irrational commitment to something in spite of strong evidence contrary. They think we're crazy for the faith we have, right? They think we're believing in something that might not even sure is true. And so these meanings that even though they're in the Bible is not going to help them understand how to say yes to Jesus. And so our vernacular, what we say is important, even though obviously we want to try to keep to biblical language, I think we need to think about how to use other words that are more helpful. So I would say, would you want to put your trust in Jesus? Would you want to follow Jesus? That shows this commitment of obedience, not just you want to believe in Jesus. So true saving faith comes only when I make a decision of my will to depend on or trust in Christ as my savior. And it's a decision I make with my heart. 
So you don't have to do other actions at this point, like if someone's dying, but in your heart, you have to have that trust. So the question is, is then how can we grow in trust? Because some people are not ready to trust Christ because they don't know Christ, right? So we need to keep giving them good information, true information about Christ, about Jesus, and then they'll better be able to put their trust in him as they learn who he is through the stories. Okay, so the next question is, why are both repentance and faith necessary? Why do we need both? Well, Paul preached the gospel in Acts 20, 21. He said, the gospel is of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he said both those things are necessary. Then Hebrews says that the first two elements of foundational Christian teaching in Hebrews 6, 1, it says this, is repentance from your works and then faith towards God. So both are required to have a true conversion. And then I bolded this. If this was my favorite sentence of the whole teaching, repentance means a conscious decision to turn away from your sins. And faith means turning to Christ to forgive those sins. I think that's just the real way of understanding it. So it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, renouncing it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. Repentance like faith is an intellectual understanding. Yes, sin is wrong. It's an emotional approval of the teachings of the scripture regarding sin. I have sorrow and I have hatred towards sin and a personal decision to turn from it. I think what happens in our culture is we try to get, get people saved, come to Jesus, accept him in your life, and then later down the road, they have no fruit, no fruit, more sin, more sin. Oh, now I'm going to surrender my life. And you see that a lot at youth, right? A kid comes to Christ, maybe you don't see fruit and then, oh, they go to youth group and they want to surrender everything, right? And some of it is maybe they actually understand sin better. Maybe they didn't understand how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes it's just that they never really understood wanting to repent and, and see sin as ugly, you know, and, and something to turn from. So genuine repentance will result in a changed life. And this is key. It's important to realize that mere sorrow for one's actions or even deep remorse over one's actions does not constitute genuine repentance unless it's accompanied by a sincere decision to forsake sin that is being committed against God. Repentance and faith occur together. When we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking God to save us from. If that were not true, our turning to Christ for salvation from sin could hardly be a genuine turning to him or a genuine trusting in him. It's contrary to the New Testament to speak about the possibility of having true saving faith without having any repentance of sin. It's also contrary to the New Testament to speak about the possibility of someone accepting Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. Oh, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I'm not making him Lord of my life. You can't do that. You need to accept him as Savior and as Lord, committing yourself to obedience to Christ from that point on. So when Jesus, he invited sinners, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But here's what he said right after. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So he's asking for obedience too, not just belief in him. To come to him includes taking his yoke upon us, being subject to his direction and guidance, learning from him and being obedient to him. And then I underlined this. 
If we are unwilling to make such a commitment, then we have not truly placed our trust in him. If we can't commit to making him Lord, if we can't commit to wanting to follow his ways, then we have not trusted in him. We have not surrendered to him. So the call to repentance, it's, it is a call to discipleship, right? We want to learn to grow and become more like Jesus. We will be faithful, available, and teachable. If we are not wanting to become like Jesus, we never put our true repentance and faith in him. So faith and repentance go hand in hand because turning from sin in a genuine way is impossible apart from genuinely turning to God, right? If you don't really turn to God, you're never going to be able to turn from your sin. So that's how you can help. So if you're stuck, if you see a young person or a friend and they're just constantly stuck in their sin, you might want to say, maybe you've never actually turned your life to Christ and surrendered to him because there's no evidence of any victory in your life. So we want to make sure that those go together. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, this it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So Jesus is explaining how we should share the gospel. When Jesus encountered people personally in the Bible, he required them to turn from their sins if, he was, if they were going to follow him. So look at these examples. The rich young leader, you need to leave everything and follow me. For Zacchaeus, for the woman at the well, for Nicodemus. He constantly put his finger on the area of the sin that most influenced the person's life. And what you see in these like teenage conversions at camps, it's because they've already had sex or they're already in pornography or they're already this or that. And what they know is Jesus is putting a point on them and saying, give that to me, surrender that to me. And so that feels like a real conversion in their life because when Jesus pursues, he normally convicts us of the sin that we need to turn from. Peter, he modeled this in Acts 3, 19. He said, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you have to repent for your sins to be blotted out. And then Paul did this in Athens. He said, the time of ignorance of God was overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul explains to the Romans that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And in the church of Corinth, Paul said, repentance is what leads to salvation. And so we see clearly through Paul's writings, repentance is not optional to come to Jesus. If there's no mention of the need of repentance, then it becomes just this, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That is not the gospel. So let me ask you this. Why might that message be dangerous or misleading if you just said, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved? So why we don't want to say believe in Jesus and be saved is it's a watered down version of the gospel. It doesn't ask for a wholehearted commitment to Christ. Being committed to Christ needs to include turning from sin. Preaching the need for faith without repentance is preaching half the gospel. It will result in people being deceived, thinking they've heard the Christian gospel and tried it, but what happens? Nothing in their life happens because they never had the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't repent and turn to Christ and want to hate sin in your life, the Holy Spirit's not in you, so you're going to have an unfruitful life. So this is where we need to just briefly discuss what's the free grace movement. Because they would debate everything I just taught you. 
And what did I just keep saying? Repentance and faith, repentance, faith. And I showed you all that through scripture, right? But here's what they believe. The free grace movement, it's promoted by members of the Free Grace Alliance and the Grace Evangelical Society. It began by a man named Louis Speary Schaefer. He was the first president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he wrote his own systematic theology book. And he stated this, quote, in his theology book, the New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition for salvation. Did I not just show you? I'll read it to you again. But I showed you verse after verse after verse that repentance is necessary. Even Jesus said the gospel is repentance for salvation. And this professor in his systematic theology book said the New Testament does not impose or expect repentance upon the unsaved. So he does not expect the unsaved to repent as a condition of salvation. As we have already seen, this is clearly unbiblical. The teaching of the free Grace movement has led a whole generation of professing Christians whose lives are no different from the surrounding culture and who are really not saved at all. I need you to listen to, it may not be your lead pastor, but it might be, or it might be other people that are on stage and sharing. How are they sharing the gospel when the gospel is presented? What is being shared or what is being omitted? Because if they're not sharing the whole gospel and you won't think of it, I'm having you try to be aware because you know the gospel. So you might not even think about what they're not saying. Does that make sense? What's left out? Are they talking about repentance? Because if your pastor or your leaders are not including repentance, people think they're coming to Christ and they're not. People might be getting baptized thinking they're believers and they're not. So it's just something, listen, you know, and then you could humbly go and just say, help me understand how do you explain the gospel to someone? Because it doesn't need to include repentance. You know, because I didn't really hear that because they could be a part of this movement and you not realize it. Okay, so you just want to have your ears open to that and, and because that matters, right? People bring their friends to church hoping to hear a gospel message. What is the gospel message that they are hearing? So moving on with free grace movement. So they believe that a gospel presentation that requires repentance as well as faith, they see that as a workspace salvation. That's why. So they are against repenting because then they feel like, well, your repenting is an act of works, so it should not be needed for salvation. That's their view. They say that requiring repentance with faith is the false gospel. So they call this a false gospel, lordship salvation, which is saying you're wanting to make Jesus Lord of your life. So they're saying it is not required to make Jesus Lord of your life to be saved. So that's the other thing. You don't have to repent and you don't have to make Jesus Lord. They would say that saving faith only involves trusting Christ as your savior and that submitting to him as your Lord, whom you commit to obey is optional later step and it's unnecessary for salvation. You don't have to commit to obey. So it is the kind of idea of, oh yeah, you're really saved, but maybe 20 years from now you actually surrender and make him Lord of your life. I would say when that happens, that's probably your real conversion. Does that make sense? That, I, that is your real conversion, but they would say no. So some in this movement even claim that saving faith only requires intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel. Listen to this, Bob Wilkin, you might've heard his name before. He's the executive director of Grace Evangelical Society. He's written many books, Bob Wilkin. 
And he said, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? If you do, then you know what faith is from a biblical perspective. There is no commitment, no decision of the will, no turning from sins, and no works that are part of faith in Christ. If you are convinced or persuaded that what he promised is true, then you believe in him, end quote. That is so not the gospel. And he is the president of Grace Evangelical Society and has written many books that are in your Christian bookstores. Some of the free grace movement do understand, we're not gonna throw them all under the bus, some do understand repentance to mean an intellectual resolve to turn from one's sins, but they do say it's not important for saving faith. So they do know you should repent of your sins, but they still would say it's not necessary for saving faith. They also don't believe good works needs to follow after saving faith, the evidence of a changed heart or regeneration. In their opinion, it would be wrong to challenge people to look at their lives and see if there'd be any change because it's judging the person, right? But James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Our works do not save us, but our works are evidence of a regenerate, transformed, spirit-filled life, right? So all main denominational branches of historic Protestantism have affirmed that repentance from sin must always be accompanied by genuine faith and that good works and a changed life will be a necessary result from genuine faith. So we are, we're Orthodox Protestant theology. That's what our churches are. And we would disagree with the distinctive beliefs of the free grace movement. Now, one thing Grudem says is we want to be careful to say, well, I believe in lordship salvation, which is a term that they don't like. And he says it's because just the term itself is misleading. And it's interesting. This is how he explains it. You could assume that the free grace position is you can accept Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. And then other evangelicals believe you have to accept Jesus as both Lord and Savior. So that's kind of the two camps. But when you think about it, free grace supporters, they're still going to say, well, Jesus is Lord of the universe and he's Lord and it's sovereign over our lives, even if we don't submit to him, which we would probably agree to. He's Lord of our life. He's sovereign, even if we don't submit to him. Right. That, so they would say, well, yes, he is Lord. But we're meaning it differently, right? We're meaning like, no, we're following you as Lord. We're submitting to you as Lord. Also, we both agree that we're not perfectly always submitted to Christ, right? We could all admit there's somewhere in our life where it's hard to submit still now to God, right? But we're believers. And so they're like, well, how can you claim Lordship salvation when you still have a hard time submitting every area of life all the time, right? So that's what makes this term tricky. And both sides agree Jesus is Lord in some sense. And he's not fully Lord in another sense. So it's hard to use that term. So we want to maybe stay away from this idea of lordship salvation. The free grace movement preaches a weaker gospel because it avoids any call for people to repent of their sins. This is no minor matter because repentance from sin is such an important part of the gospel in many New Testament summaries and presentations, as we saw. It cannot be omitted without grave consequences in the lives of people who hear such a weakened message. We must add, though, that there are some true conversions from free grace movement. They do lead people to Christ, and some people really do make him Lord. Like, they still get the whole gospel, even though the whole gospel wasn't shared. You know, there are still some transformed lives through their presentations. So if you want to learn more about that, you can look at Free Grace Theology by Dr. Grunham. But I would say, listen to the people that are teaching the flock 
and see how they're sharing the gospel and are they talking repentance and faith, right? That's what, and if they're not, would people actually be converted and actually see change in their life? That's what I want you to look out for as, as people within churches or groups. So last two things, what is promised for those who come to Christ? We want to share with people your forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. I mean, those are the two biggest things that are promised. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Not a perfect life on heaven. Not disease-free, death-free, right? It's forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. And John 3.16 says, Those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Acts 3.19 says, Repent and turn back so your sins will be blotted out. So the last thing is just so should people pray, right, to receive Christ? Do they need to pray? Scripture talks about receiving Christ, and since personal faith in Christ must involve an actual decision of the will, it's often helpful to express that decision in spoken words, and this could very naturally take place in prayer because you're just talking to God, right? At some point, you have to have a conversation with God and say, I repent of my sins. Jesus, I want you in my life. I think that would be called prayer, <laughs> you know, because it's talking to God. So in a sense, the Bible doesn't clearly say, pray this prayer to come to Christ, but clearly you need to have a conversation with Christ to be saved, right? Does that make sense? We, yes, it's not in the Bible, pray this prayer, but we do need to have a conversation with him. So it's not the prayer that saves us, but it's the attitude of the heart that constitutes the true conversion. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you have given us Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, that we can repent and turn from our sins and we can have faith in you, Jesus. Trust in you that you are the one that can save us and change us and make us new. Help us to be more astute to hear how the gospel is shared around us and see if it's a complete gospel presentation or not, and to help train others to know how to share it better so that we can really have more confidence that people around us are actually followers of Jesus, or did they only hear half the message and they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in their life to be able to have change. And so help us to come alongside even the people in our churches that might think they're believers and have this conversation to have them think about, have they actually repented and turned from their sins? In your name we pray, amen. amen.